0: Hi, I'm Mackie DeRiz, and welcome to the Mind That Ego podcast. Today, I'm joined by David Paul Cookpatrick. David is an American film producer, studio exec- executive, and writer. Most notably, David was production chief at Walt Disney Pictures and president of Paramount Pictures. He managed and oversaw over 200 films over his 17 years at Paramount, including Top Gun and franchises, including Indiana Jones, Star Trek. Friday the 13th, and Beverly Hills Cop. He is a Golden Globe award-winning independent filmmaker with pictures including Big Night and the HBO television miniseries, Brasputin. David founded the MIT Center for the Future of Storytelling in 2008 and the Story Summit in 2019. He has authored several books, including The Address of Happiness, The Dog, written with Stephen James Taylor, and The Adventures of Merlin to be published in 2023. David, welcome to the show.
1: Well, well, thank you so much, Ricky. I'm happy to be here. I almost said welcome to you because I'm so used to, uh, you know, always being in control. So, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy
0: to be your guest today. <laughs> oh, it's, it's a pleasure. And feel free to, um, yeah, to guide as, as you wish, you know, the, the discussion. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, to join me on the show and, and I guess to add a, a frame to the discussion um, and a bit of structure it was your article on, on the diamond and creativity that that switched me on to your work and, and your perspective on on creativity I'm wondering if if you could begin by by maybe giving some background on your relationship with creativity and when you first started to explore the the depths of it uh, as a a psychic function?
1: Sure, uh, uh, of course. Well, I spent most of my adult life in the world of creativity, working with writers, directors, and actors. Uh, That was principally in the Hollywood studio system. Um, People sometimes think, oh, you know, the suits or the people who operate, you know, the, the, the companies. Um, Indeed, I started out as a story editor working uh, with writers trying to improve their scripts before we went into production. So I, I have a particular point of view about tapping into creativity and sometimes when you're not able to tap into creativity, but I, I think from an early age, honestly, I grew up in America in a little town. Um, I was different because I really was interested in the arts. So while my older brother was wrestling and, you know, five years old and became almost became state champion and, you know, played football and baseball, I was in, you know, a little puppet theater you know, playing with um archetypes and um magicians and knights and dragons. And um I always felt that the way to express the interior of myself was through the play. Mm-hmm. And I mean the play in the most broad sense, Ricky, mm-hmm. you know, which really goes for everything from theater to books to movies to television, etc, and uh, because I think play is where we as human beings can find ourselves
0: and you mentioned archetypes uh, and it, in this process of play was that something that you were even from a young age consciously aware of, or was it for you like a, a blurring of reality like these these characters, these magicians these these archetypes kind of were just part of the world almost. Well, if,
1: or if we're to believe, Carl Jung, uh, in the notion of collective unconscious, uh, that it doesn't matter if you're in Berlin, as in your case, or in Massachusetts, in my case, we have similar dreamscapes. Mm. And we all have a kind of pocket full of characters that uh, come to us in our dreams and come to us through our impulses and instincts. And this is what we call archetypes. And um, I became more familiar with them because when I was a peculiar kid and my aunt at a very early age gave me the hardcover book of uh, Man and His Symbols, which is a book that Carl Jung felt compelled to write in order for the great unwashed, like me, you know, to better understand his high-ended theories. And so what was great about that book, and if anybody ever wants to read it, uh, because you can find it on Amazon and, you know, on eBay, et cetera, et cetera, is to get the hardcover because there are hard covers still available that may in America would be $10 or $12 rather than the paperback, because the hardback is filled with pictures and it's filled with pictures of archetypes in movies and television and in drawings and wardrobe and through history. And what Jung really does is he brings it all together to believe that why is it that we all have, we all dreams in a similar fashion, whether you're Chinese or, or, um, you know, um, African-American, it doesn't matter. And, uh, and it's a fascinating area and you can come to your own conclusions, you know, about that dreamscape and, you know, what is it, you know, Is it, you know, is it, is it from the divine? Is it something built into each of us in terms of our DNA and our genome? Um, So, and you know, philosophers smarter than I, you know, go on and on about those particular issues. But uh, even Joseph Campbell will say that it's interesting because on all seven continents, people dream of the flood. Now, what flood? That there was some kind of flood in their dreamscape, et cetera, that uh, took down a lot of people. And of course, in a lot of the world religions, we see the flood as being a major motif. So as a kid, you know, and playing with puppets, et cetera, and trying to create tension and trying to create drama in the play, you know, I love the fact that, you know, I could pull from various different symbol characters which I would know as archetype. And uh, and uh, because it gets at the root of people. You know, I mean, mm. Shakespeare is a perfect example. I mean, he had everything from gestures to witches, to kings, to queens, to, you know, mad prophets, etc. So all archetypes.
0: So how old were you when you had, uh, man, or you read Man and His Symbols? You were, you were quite young. I was, I think it had just come out
1: so I was maybe 14. Wow. Yeah, um, so I I started young.
0: Yeah, because I... I with young. <laughs> young with young. <laughs> it took, I think to, to be able to um, grapple with that uh, and that level of understanding at, at that age must have kind of set you on your way as a, a storyteller. Clearly, there was something that you had, like a, a creative spark from a young age. Did you feel... Almost like that was your, your destiny to, to tell stories. Oh,
1: I, I found it to be the case because when I was 12, uh, we all know who Walt Disney was, and, and, and I'm old enough to kind of have seen him live on, on, on the television screen. And he used to host a show, which was Sunday night called The Wonderful World of Disney. And every week there'd be a different story he would tell. And, you know, my brothers would all sit down and watch the TV. And, you know, we're very excited because it was always a great story. And Walt, who was kind of a father or grandfather figure. And then he disappeared. Mm. He didn't, he wasn't hosting anymore and they didn't have any hosts. And this was went on for about three or four weeks. And I finally asked my dad, what happened to Walt Disney? Now, when you're a kid, you know. You don't you're not fully aware of life and death. You're not fully aware of um, reality from the standpoint of the television set and people who come through it. And you know it's broadcast, and but you're just kind of fuzzy about things. Um, and my dad said, "Oh, Mr. Disney's not well, and he's in the hospital." So I said, "Oh, just by instinct." I'm going to go and make Mr. Disney a little movie and uh, I'm going to cheer him up. Now I'm a kid in Ohio, you know, you know, I run a news, you know, I pass out the newspapers and I make a little money and I make a little money so I could buy a super eight camera. Now Steven Spielberg once said to me, the only reason George Lucas and I are in the movie business, it's a very different era. You know, you're talking really about the, you know, late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. etc. The only reason why George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, according to Steven Spielberg, were in the movie business is because they were born into the middle class. And in the middle class, your mom or dad might be able to buy you a camera, mm-hmm. which was like $200, which was so much money then, Um, which I think is interesting. So there's, you know, of course, today there's been, been the democracy Democratization of art, and everybody has a camera, and everybody's making movies, and everyone's a YouTube star, etc. But then, I went to the backyard with what—a princess from next door named Barbara Nelson, uh, a knight who was my brother uh, Teddy, and uh, a dragon. I forget who played the dragon, but you know it was a costume dragon, and we made it in the backyard. And essentially, the, the the unique thing about it is it wasn't the knight who got the princess; it was the dragon, and they lived happily ever dra- after. So um, I, you know, finished it and I edited it, you know, which was like with little tape and all that kind of stuff. So it was the original, and I said I need to send it to Walt Disney so he can cheer him up. And uh, long story short. My father, who was a salesman, said, you got to get in touch with the secretaries and be friends with the secretaries. So, so soon a 12-year-old boy was on the phone with Peggy, <laughs> who worked for Mr. Disney. And um, so I talked to Peggy, in my little squeaky voice, which hadn't changed <laughs> yet. And I said, how do I get this movie to Mr. Disney? Because I think he'll laugh. She was beguiled by me, you know, or the voice or that I called from, and that my father in the background could be prompting me uh, because it was a long distance call. So he had to, you know, assume the charges. <laughs> and, um, and Peggy was said, Oh, we have a, an eight projector in animation and I will make sure that I get that projector to Mr. Disney and then he sees your movie. Wow. And that was a very different time.
0: Yeah.
1: And Mr. Disney saw that movie in the hospital bed in Burbank. And uh, two weeks later, in my mailbox in Ohio, was a note from the Walt Disney Studios. And inside was a letter from Mr. Disney on his stationery, but it was handwritten. saying that he did indeed appreciate it, that he did laugh and that if ever uh, I would want to get involved in the movie business, that uh, he should, that I should come to his new school. Mm -hmm. And when I was 17, I applied for that new school, which was called California Institute of the arts. And this is just the way, I mean, I think Walt Disney was many things and, he may be the most important brand on the face of the earth, maybe even more so than the cross, Mm. you know, when you look at symbols. Mm. And, um, and uh, so in the end, I I had four other brothers and I really couldn't afford a private college. And uh, I had, I called up the Dean of the school, you know, I had gotten in and um, he said, well, that's okay, because we found a letter in your file. And, you know, and it was from Peggy, uh, <laughs> saying that if, indeed, he couldn't afford it, and I'd done my financials and all that stuff, yeah. you, know, for, you know, that uh, the foundation, the Walt Disney Foundation would pay for my education. So from a very, so 17 years old, you know, I'm in contact with Walt Disney. He says my work is pretty good. Why not come to his school? So it was a confirmation that I was to continue on that track. Mm. And, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of theory on, you know, following your impulse or following your bliss or following what makes you happy. And I don't think I was ever more happy than sitting, you know, in my little desk, you know, and, you know, my wallpapered bedroom making a little movie for Walt Disney. It mm. was about archetypes. Mm. And he knew about archetypes. Yeah. Because that's what fairy tales are all about. Yeah. The and mythological. Uh, yeah. And, of course, he, you know, you look at the original Pinocchio and it's a very dark tale and, mm. and you know, and uh, full of crazy stuff. But, you know, Walt when he in his genius, he took it over and he made it palpable for children. And um and and a general audience. So I was always interested in stories that could touch the heart
0: of general audiences. I say this word, but of course language is also symbolic of, of deeper meaning. But this idea of enchantment it sounds like a, a really enchanted journey in, into storytelling. It must have been at such a young age to to have what for many children is almost the impossible to to be able to create something and then someone like Walt Disney to, to see that. Um, I wonder if, if through this, this spell, if that was something that you tapped into, this feeling of enchantment and wonder, and if that kind of led you Continually on your path, and and you mentioned play as well. And I wonder, for a lot of us, we we you know go for education, and we can almost have creativity stifled. Do you feel like you could almost keep that intact, having gone from you know as a kid making film to then um, at the age of seventeen starting to learn and and be creative at that age? Do you feel you were able to kind of almost keep that untarnished, that creative? Um, Spock?
1: You know, yes, I, I, I felt that I've always been driven, and even to a degree on the subject that we're talking about today, the diamond. And I think the diamond was with me from an early age. And the diamond, you know, from the standpoint of the Greeks who originated the d- term, it was the source of inspiration and enlightenment. You know, we might call it, uh, the muse, uh, the Romans called it genii or genie, uh, because, uh, which is the root of genius.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, interesting, uh, in those times genius or the diamond would float from place to place and, you know, and would some suddenly inspire you in today's world. Uh, Elon Musk is a genius. Yeah. You know, um, Steve Jobs, he was a genius. You know, it's it's a very different kind of way of looking at it. But what Carl Jung said, and I actually printed it out, is so I could remember it. The man driven by his daemon enters the untrodden, untreadable regions where there are no charted ways and no shelter spreads a protecting roof over his head. Mm. And um, to a degree, the nature of the artist is to break through the system. It's the same as the knight's way. The -hmm. knight's way was never to be part of an army. The knight's way was to go on his own particular journey to find himself and to find his destiny and then conquer that destiny. Um, The... The interesting thing about art today is that so much of it has been um, taken over by the system. And and even though we have fantastic abilities now in do-your-own-culture, there still are the traditional big five publishers in the world, Mm. including Bertelsmann and uh there are still the major studios, and they or and and the streamers, and they have access to a lot of money and people pay subscriptions to enter and sometimes the interest in the system is they won't make art for art's sake mm. they'll make art to make money now uh so they're art to make money is going to be narrower because they need to reach out to the general audience. So I can say this in point, having been a movie executive most of my life is that uh, when I was at Disney, we had just made a deal with uh, Jim Henson, who was a lovely man and he had all kinds of, magical creatures in his world, you know, this piggy and Kermit the mm-hmm. Frog and Fozzie the Bear. And um, but he had essentially, you know, he was in his early 50s. He had worked so tirelessly as a puppeteer and he had amassed a huge for- fortune. And he was the gentlest guy. And uh just this past week in The Guardian, Frank Oz, who was not only the voice of Fozzie and also the voice and puppeteer for Miss Piggy, he was also the voice of Yoda. Mm. And he says, well, it's not just the voice, it's the soul of the voice. But uh, Frank uh, uh, trashed Disney the other day because he felt that the work that they were doing from the Jim Henson empire had lost the original mission of Jim, which was to really treat children gently, to educate them through play Mm. and through humor, and to build character through that. Now, he was a Christian scientist, um, so he didn't really believe in medicine or Western medicine. And so um, he died of a flu at fifty-three. Mm. And I was, I was, I was talking to Frank the other day, Frank Oz, and we were remembering his funeral, which was at St. Patrick's Cathedral. Now this is a major creator, you know, Walt Disney would have loved Jim Henson, and uh, the place was jammed, you know, for his funeral. Because it was sudden and shocking, and nobody really understood it, and people were still lurk looking for the answers. It's like Princess Diana or, you know, our, you know, growing up, John F. Kennedy. It was just like so flabbergasting to this insulated world. And people were very upset, but they were also shocked. So the the whole cathedral was very huge, three stories. the The nave opens up, you know, and in comes... I swear, and he, you know, a canary, canary yellow big bird, as big as a Macy's Day float. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he leads a procession of other imaginary characters, including all the beloved characters <sighs> that have grown children for years, into this big bastion of Catholic stuff. <laughs> And he and Big Bird goes up onto the the platform where normally a priest will give his, you know, sermon. And under the statue of Christ, and I, the symbol, under the statue of Christ, he sings, it's not easy to be green. <laughs> and in that moment, you saw something incredible happen in a place of worship. It also became a place of celebration of imagination that wasn't in, you know, enshrined in dogma. Here you've yeah. got, you know, Canary Big Bird, you know, <laughs> you know reaching out to Christ in the crucifix singing. It's not easy to be green. I mean, for God's sake, man and yet in our culture or it has been and I think now Mm post-covid a lot of things are changing I think there's a huge shift in consciousness happening but in those days it was such a liberating experience Mm -hmm. to see that kind of enchantment Mm -hmm. taking place in a bastion where you know Royal weddings took place, and you know, and and, you know, and and inaugural took place, etc. So, um, and that was a kid, you know, like any other kid, you know, who played with puppets, you know, Mm. and Mm. Hanson was a boy as a boy, yeah. Walt Disney called, he would sit under the what he called the dreaming tree in the Midwest when he was uh, four or five years old, and he studied all the all the little insects, he called it belly biology. Mm -hmm. Uh, To just look with your eyes is the only magnifying glass at this stuff. And it's too bad because I I think you, you know, your implication is right. Is that, you know, education and the system and everything else, you know, slowly diminishes our sense of youthful wonder.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that, it's like a, a certain rigidity, and and I, I, I sometimes find I, I in some of my content as well. I discuss seriousness, be it through I, sometimes in the context of of like spirituality and, and and ego, but also in the context of play and and creativity, and and this this beautiful metaphor of the kind of rigid dogma and structure that was from that burst forth, this like color and vibrancy. And, and there is something in that, like almost absurd contrast that, that is the spring of, of a lot of uh, innovation, almost, uh, I find. That's a beautiful story. Yeah, it's a beautiful story yeah. of also of this retaining of like if you can retain that creativity and, and it can bring a lot of wonder, it can bring a lot of joy. It can lead to great storytellers or, or great innovators. Um, not to just completely f- like flip that, but I, I'm wondering if we could segue in from that into the, you know, looking at Jungian psychology and, and looking at the diamond and seeing the potential for for creative genius and, and joining of the dots. As with polarity, there's a, a shadow to the diamond, and there's a shadow to to a lot of times with people that have huge creative potential, whether they are creative geniuses or they're just creative people. When was it for you when you first came in contact with that or more like the shadow aspect of, of creativity, was it the, that was something that you, you kind of noticed as you entered the system or as you grew into adulthood, like, was it a, a gradual thing or was it something that you kind of, um, stumbled across almost if that makes sense as a as a question
1: <laughs> you know yes, of course it makes sense as a as a as a as a question i i don't well i don't yes, i mean you know what's the the line you know every light casts a shadow you know, and you know union. You know, psychology is based on the, um, you know, the duality of the soul or the psyche or the consciousness Um, because it's everywhere in nature. You know, I mean, you know, um, we can't have spring without a winter. Uh, We can't have day without a night. And we can't have life without death. And um, I don't see the shadow necessarily as being death. Mm -hmm. I see it more as the opposite, or I should say, I don't see the shadow as evil. Mm -hmm. I see the shadow as the destructive force against creativity. Yeah. Yeah. What I have found over time working with creative people for so many years is that they can't understand themselves. And one of the things about the eureka moment, inspiration, aha, is that it needs to boil up and boil up and boil up, which is... Natural tension within the artist—it's mm-hmm. just natural because what what is you know the underlying notion of physics is that energy can only happen um, when uh, tension is released. Mm-hmm. That's how energy comes. Mm-hmm. Boom. Now, I've seen so many people not able to wait for that energy. They think that there's something wrong with them. Why aren't they always in a place of fantastic creation? I mean, any of your listeners will know, gosh, when you're in the state of that flow and you're painting a canvas or Mm -hmm. you're making a movie, you know, or you're writing something, Then when suddenly you look at your watch and it's three hours later and you say, what happened? Well, you were in the flow state of inspiration. Now, I was reading something about Ernest Hemingway from a Paris Review interview he did in 1957. Uh, Are you impressed with my detail? Uh, I am. That was very
0: well remembered. (laughs) with,
1: with With George Plimpton. And he said this. He said, I start my day. Now, he was you know, drunk. He was all kinds of things. you know. He was, he was psychotic and he you had know, psychotic breakdowns, et cetera. But he was disciplined. Mm. And no matter what he had done or what kind of brawling he had done the night before, he would show up at his desk before first light. And first light, for people who don't get up that early, realize that it's before dawn and when this before the sun comes up onto the horizon, you know we get this kind of magic hour, yeah. of
2: uh,
1: beauty. And then the sun fifteen twenty or an hour later will come up. But and Ernest Hemingway says I would get up for first light because while I was at you know my desk, my blood would warm up mm. to the sunrise. And in that time of writing, nothing was better. Nothing, uh, nothing gave me more joy, you know, happiness. And when I was done or the juice left me, which, by the way, generally based on the, you know, the data that we have from people who wrote their masterworks, whether it was you know, uh, you know, Victor Hugo or Mark Twain, you have about three hours of juice as a writer a day. And then mm. it's gone. That's mm. it. And so and, and, and Hemingway called it the juice. And he said, and when the juice would go, I would be fully sated like a lover who had just made love to a woman I loved. And then I would have to wait all day <sighs> for it to happen again the next day. Yeah. And then my, my life was in, in that time where he would do brawlings and bullfights and all that kind of other stuff, was his half life. Mm. It was not his life. Because the artist comes alive through the diamond, through the muse, when he's aligned in so, or he, he or she is aligned in such a way that they're just there. And yeah. Jung said, wait, I've got a creative person has little power over his own life. He is not free. He is captive and driven by his diamond. And Carl considered himself one too mm-hmm. because he was in the creative world of consciousness and the mind. But he says in a, in a very touching piece in his uh, memoir, dreams, memories, and reflections, mm-hmm. He said, but when I had found everything I could from that person, I had to move on. He said, I, I because he was a, he was a uh, discoverer of the mind. Yeah. I had to move on. And hmm. <clears throat> it was like leaving somebody in the battlefield. I love you, uh, but I have to leave you and move on. And I think that was so incredibly um, uh, revealing about Jung. Uh, Because I do think he is, it was a really forward thinking and really did incredible work in terms of understanding the human being. And, um, and he used the diamond, or the diamond a lot in his writings. And, um, and Rollo May, who was a kind of contemporary and also a very well-respected psychiatrist said, to, to really be creative, the daemon needed to be by your side. And the daemon was both creative and destructive, um, and and that comes down to this notion. I think of managing yourself as an mm-hmm. artist, and I I I talk and train writers in this area because I do believe that uh, you have to treat the diamond with respect. Because, you know, uh, it's kind of like what the Romans thought of the uh, genie. You know, he he or she is fleeting. Mm. And so, therefore, you have to create a sacred space for them where whatever that is, which may be just part of your interior being. Uh, many believe that it's your interior being as well as your interior being attached to the divine or something beyond yourself. And so if you're going to do that, you know, what we found at least based on research and based on the, you know, the study of the masterworks and my own experience working with thousands of writers and actors and, and, and directors is you've got to be disciplined in yourself. Like Hemingway, you've got to show up on a regular basis the same time and the same day. So, um, okay, wifey, I mean, thank you very much. I love you. Now, goodbye. Because I've got to go into my sacred place for three hours and be with my diamond. And people would do crazy stuff. I mean, You know, one of the great poems, you know, the, uh, um, you know, the, uh, oh, God, I can't think of it, The Wasteland. Mm -hmm. You know, T.S. Eliot would meet his diamond by putting on green, a green mask every day. And, you know, people are like, well, why would you do that? You know, uh, oh, you know, uh, you know, poet laureate of England, Mm -hmm. because I felt exalted. And so he matched his daemon when he went there because people who have been in that flow realize that something extraordinary is happening. And you don't need booze. You don't need psilocybin. You don't need Adderall. You don't need anything. Yeah. Which, by the way, for a lot of people in the waiting game, like people like River Phoenix and you know John Belushi, who I got to know very well, um they just wanted that that vibe to come back yeah and uh so they started you know working with stimulants you know and trying to find ways to get because something must be wrong with them no nothing was wrong your psyche was rebuilding for the next day um you know, with actors, it's different. You've got a longer runway. You know, you may be working 8, 12 hours a day. Uh, so you've kind of got to keep that up. But, you know, there's a reason why some actors and actresses shield their faces. Because they are so involved in an other vitality with that character. They don't want to... Or they can't, or they're afraid to step out of it. Mm. You know, the worst thing you can do, and you know, when visitors would come from Milwaukee to the set in Hollywood, and well, come on over, you know, come on over to the set, and you know, and you know, all they'd want to do was meet Harrison Ford or Tom Cruise, and and uh, no, no, they're working. What do you mean they're actors? (laughs) What the But whether they were good actors or bad actors, in this case they were stars, and their own sensibility was, I'm, I'm in my moment, hmm. and um, you 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 understand that, and sometimes people don't come out of that moment, or even will leave their husbands or wives for three or four months while they're shooting a film because it's not them. Yeah. And that's all play. It's all play. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we sit in the theater, we, you know, we see fantastic streaming on television. And, you know, I mean, it's not Nathaniel Hawthorne said, easy writing, what easy reading is damn hard writing. <laughs> And all that work that may be magical and enchanted or really takes you into a different world. Mm. It's a world traveling. I mean, my boss for many, many years, Michael Eisner, who was chairman of Disney for 21 years, said it all comes down to an experience of traveling. Traveling. That was what entertainment was. Because you were being hooked by an emotion and taken into a world for two or three hours and either reading your book or watching an animated cartoon or whatever it may be. And uh, came out the other side of it mm. because it was, um, it was enchantment and it was play. It was yeah. all play. A bunch of grown people making things up to entertain and to inspire and to educate. And, uh, and it's thrilling to be around people with that you know but i'm almost i almost think ricky that much of the shadow experience is in the waiting for the artist waiting like having dinner with your girlfriend after you've shot all day Mm. but really not wanting to be there because you we're afraid to sort of step out of your imaginary world. Mm. I mean, it's tough to live with, you know, artists. Yeah. It's, it's tough to live with artists because they are on different paths. They are really, they are on paths that are outside the system. Mm-hmm. Even though the system loves to get all those people, put them under its swing and, you know exploit them into slavery
0: (laughs) yeah yeah for the for the for the sake of the the box office
1: (laughs) well you know i had a number of experiences while i worked at disney with very famous people who had major uh libraries like ted galfas who was dr seuss Mm. i had tried to bring like we did with jim henson I tried to bring all of Dr. Seuss under the Disney banner. And uh, in the end, his wife, I mean, he was just afraid of it, of that little, those little paths he walked being consumed by, you know, Coca-Cola or Disney or, you know, and becoming something else. Even if it would mean him never having to work again or being able to, take care of his whole family and forever, never, never. Mm. So that's, I mean, that's, that's the thing. And, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing fewer and fewer brands taking over more and more stuff. Yeah. So that's, that, that's a scary thing culturally in the next 50 years.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh man. Talking of paths, uh, there are so many that we can go down. I, I've I've got to choose choose wisely. Um, there are so many. It also, I, I I well, I think you know. I think that most most of us love cinema. Most of us love story. We're, we're drawn to it instinctively. I personally, at one point in my life, I wanted to be a film director, um, and I kind of deviated paths. And and before I launched Mind that ego and like self development and and all this kind of stuff. That was an area that I was interested in. I worked writing about film, and um I share that just because that part of me is like there wanting to ask questions in in this you know this this uh, paradigm um and then I've got like the the more of the psychologists on this side wanting to ask questions um I think this this um distinction, well, That sounds like you need to integrate right <laughs> yeah, it does <laughs> isn't it? to bring it into like holification. Ricky yeah. Ricky, the movie, Ricky, and then like the psychologist Ricky and bring them, right,
1: bring them right. together.
0: The, the movie mindset, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I've I've been thinking about writing more fiction. So maybe this is it. Bring in bring in the enchanted, bring in the kind of mystical into fiction. There you go. Maybe that's the the integration. Um yeah, I, I really like the the distinction that you've made with it's a lot of the time the incubation period that's where the shadow is like talking for my personal experience. Mm. I I feel the same. I also feel this flow state that can be euphoric. Like for me, it's mostly when I write, it's mostly when I write, I also in conversations like this and and in presentations can access like a peak experience. And it's very out of the ordinary and it can become addictive. Um, And I find that, Integrating that has been difficult because I've I've tapped into that um, that young talks to this almost being consumed by it and and perhaps I, I was going to ask a question about discipline and I'm glad that you expanded on that because for myself discipline has been a, a huge part of my life initially because of my mental health I knew I needed to kind of tighten the boundaries around my choice making to support my. My well being, essentially, and maybe then went too far. Um, And this within me and within a lot of creative people I know, there seems to be a dance between structure and discipline and consistency and the kind of chaos of of creativity and that kind of divergent thinking and and, um, the play with the imaginal. Um, I don't even, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. I think the point is. Well, I know what you need. Well, 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 I I
1: think it's very simple because creativity can be chaotic. Mm. So you've got to, as much as you discipline yourself, you also have to discipline your mind. Mm. Um, You've got to create, uh, you know, like when you're a kid and you play in a sandbox. Well, the sand isn't all over the place it's in this like you know you know little you know frame of wood yeah you've in a way and i think this is very important for the diamond you've got to create that little frame of wood by virtue of your schedule mm. so oh i'm gonna do this three hours a day and i'm gonna be the mad scientist and i'm just gonna go and toss it and you know, of course you've got to come back and rework it and mm-hmm. reframe it et cetera, et cetera. but that's your period, and then you have to psychologically find a way to leave it. I mean, even to say goodbye to it, to create rituals. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, you know, Joe Campbell says a ritual is only an enactment of what's going on inside. Mm -hmm. So if you bow to your pen and paper and you leave the room, And uh, you go and have a cup of tea and you come back into the room. It's a different room now. Yeah. You know, you're going to be Ricky CEO and you're going to get all your stuff done for your website and everything else. But that's a different Mm -hmm. character than the one who is writing and creating. And, And you have to put boundaries in those characters by virtue of your schedule, because we only think in time. I mean, you know, we're very limited, I guess, in terms of, you know, that. But Mm -hmm. a schedule and a preparation really helps. Because a lot of people who don't have a schedule bleed all over the place, if you know what I mean. And, oh, I got to write that down. Oh, that was a great idea. and you know, and and please out of my house, you know, <laughs> because you just don't want that stuff around you. It's so yeah. crazy, yeah. Because you're creating something out of nothing. Mm. I mean, you see these things like yeah, Lord of the Rings. Well, Tolkien worked seventeen years, mm. seventeen years on that. And by the way wasn't very popular he's a nice you know professor and all and you know smoked a pipe well but when he got together in the i think it was called the bird and eye bar mm-hmm. you know with c.s lewis and others it was like oh no you're not going to be reading about <laughs> those big feet hairy guys again are you no please <laughs> for 17 years you know yeah i mean you know it's hard to get validation while in the process yeah and you've got to find some people because flow is also it's important to get feedback on your work during flow and it doesn't mean a lot of people i mean honestly i use facebook as that you know Mm -hmm. i'll 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 come up with a concept and i'll put it against the picture and you know try to make it casual etc but what i'm really doing is i'm running a poll to see if people respond to it. Mm. And if I get to respond to it, then I'll massage it a little more in my overall writing, et cetera, et cetera. Or I'll try something, and when nobody responds to it, I say, well, maybe. you know, I've got to look for a different way to message it. Uh, Because a storyteller, and I tell this to my students all the time, a storyteller is not a storyteller without an audience. Mm. You're just a madman in a corner (laughs) blabbering and <laughs> oh, there you yeah. are yeah you know and that could go for anyone stanley kubrick or walt disney or you know Pee Wee Herman. yeah you know i mean they're you know unless you've got unless you can make it make your message and your voice and your magic um enthralling to somebody mm. else uh, not only do you not have a sustainable career but you also uh you don't have an audience yeah so
0: yeah that that also points to i know a struggle a lot of people i know who are really creative that and this is something i've i've worked with a lot transforming or translating or capturing the original creative thought without distorting it based around what other people might want or what other people will judge and the amount of people i find that enter like Yeah. I feel you have pools of people, those that can enter flow and those that maybe experience more procrastination because their, their thinking mind is really busy based on, oh, what, how will this be received? I'm no good. I'm, I'm not a good writer. These ideas are, you know, this kind of self-critic is active. So they struggle to get into flow because they're thinking of the result and the, um, the reception of the work. So I find that, for me that's been the challenge of keeping the integrity of the original creative thought and the purity of the original creative thought as it goes through every potential distortion of the mind <laughs> in that process which is, for a writer is the editing process a lot of the time I imagine you know in Hollywood it must be every meeting around budgets and every meeting around demographics and, and there must be so many pointers that can um can be not make or break, but can distort or or shape that original thought. Um, do you have any guidance around that? Like in terms of accessing creativity and kind of befriending the diamond whilst almost freeing, freeing yourself of of the the self-critic?
1: Yes. Um, I'm an okay speaker, but I'm not afraid to get in front of an audience. And the way I broke it, and the way I think what I think can be helpful uh, in regards to the self credit, is that um, you have to you have to love your audience. You have to love your message and if you were as and if you were as shy as shy you can still get up onto the stage and just allow yourself to be because you love your audience you love your mission your what you have to say and somehow if you just Allow that to happen, even if you stumble on words, even if you cry, I always cry at speeches, people love it. Um, <laughs> and um, and falter or stutter or make a mistake, because you are being authentic, because you're leading with love because you want to have this experience on the other side with those people somehow the critical side of you which by the way we all have and we all need to address because if we just allowed the demon to have his his or her way with it you know would be looking at all that fodder and saying oh my god look the ravings of a crazy man it needs to ultimately be brought into focus and that's really the critical side of it which is also a constructive side not a negative side because you are again taking it to another stage because you love your audience and you love what you have to say and somehow I mean I could speak to anyone anywhere in the world and it could be zillions of people but um, it wouldn't and it's not out of arrogance it's not out of pride it's it's certainly not out of belief that I'm very good, but I am. My message is very good. What I have to say is very important, and I want these people to understand it. And and I'm not just talking social justice or we got to change the world, or but you know we change people through their interiors, mm. and the way we do that is through tapping into emotions, and you can call it enchantment. You can also call it seducing. I spend my whole life, you know, look at me, look the way I look. I, My whole life has been spent seducing audiences, bending them to my will. Mm. Or, you know, the collective will of, of the people who want to entertain. You know, I mean, I've secretly always wanted to, I always say, edutain because I want to educate and I also want to entertain. So that's the easiest way to do it. Um, and I'm not talking math. I'm talking about, you know, people's need to be in community. People's need to um, be um, accepted and to accept others who are different from us. I mean, the, the stuff of, 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 of secular humanism. And uh, and that's that that's it. I think you easily can get beyond it if it's not about you. Yeah, it's not about you. It's about them, and it's about this that you hold this magic of story, or this magic of nonfiction that you want to get out to people mm. because it's going to change their life and you know the way they view wellness, or the way they you know view racism, etc.
0: That's a beautiful way of, of putting it i, I yeah i for, for kind of personal context so I, I used to have a, a panic disorder um for, for quite some time and depression and stuff like that and now I do public talking and and I find that that exactly what you say is, has has been part of the process this almost like a form of surrender to the message and believing more in the message than you believe in your own failings or your own like sense of perfectionism, your own self-critic, but to believe in the message more. So that resonates um, a lot personally. I'm going to take us on a bit of a tangent. It's not so much of a tangent, but we're going to go more more down the rabbit hole, right? (laughs) Um, Because this, this talk of of self and getting out of the the way and, and, and having a message that is like transcendent to the individual, that wants to be shared and and the power that can come from that. Um, be it a talk, be it the process of writing a story. I'm joining a few dots as I, as I speak, but we we kind of started with this idea of playfulness and creativity. Um, you're someone who's worked in an industry with people that lose themselves and take on archetypes and become archetypes as a, a a living and and a, and a, a performance. Um, I, when you were talking earlier, I had something came to mind, which is in Hinduism, they have a word called Leela, which is the divine play. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with that or if you've heard of it, it's yeah. basically saying like the, so from the, the non-dual, like Advaita Vedanta and Hinduism and, and Buddhism, their view of the world as a manifestation of consciousness can be seen as a play, so like as a, a teaching around the illusion of reality, and that really all, all you know, as, as, as uh, Shakespeare says, like all the world's a stage this this um, undertaking of play reality and and the self um, that for me is is something that fascinates me with like the process of acting where someone consciously chooses to leave themselves behind to become someone else and and disconnect from ego or at least the idea of who they are and then to embody something else. Um, I'm wondering if, if you have or or what your view is around that, the more kind of transcendental aspect of creativity and how it relates to the self, Um, particularly like the, collective unconscious or be it even through practices like meditation some consciousness that is outside of content if that makes sense Mm
1: -hmm. sure sure you know i I, i've thought a lot about it because you know i've been working on this um you know project uh, about a sort of celtic version of Merlin, the iconic magician. And, of course, that's led me to all kinds of studies and archaeological finds because I'm dealing with if Merlin and or Arthur lived at all, it was probably in the 5th and 6th centuries. And in Britain, that was called the Dark Ages. Mm -hmm. It wasn't dark because, you know, there was a lot of islands. There could have been that too, but we don't know anything about it. Fact is, is that when the Romans left, they took their writings and uh, their uh, written histories. And for almost two, 200 years, there was nothing written about Britain, uh, with the exception of a couple of pieces from uh, the man who we believe, you know, May Woon who be, who was known in popular culture today as uh, St. Patrick. And so, um, you know, going down the rabbit hole, you know, I've had to look at magic in a different way. I've had to look at the history of magic, going back to the golden bow and, you know, and um, trying to better understand uh, the king versus the prophet. You know, because at one time we believed that the king and the prophet were one, and then eventually as the sway of religion became a little more that, well, actually, that would be two people, you know, the king and, you know, his, his courtly, you know, priest. Um, the the thing is, I don't think, I don't think, and here I have this, what is this, quadra, quadra vivia. The four, four Classical Liberal Arts of Number, Geometry, Music, and Cosmology. Oh, wow. wow, a book. Yeah, it's a fantastic book, and it's filled with pictures, of course, which I love. Mm. But um, I don't think, well, I, my sense is that as much as we can be transformative, in our meditations, in our work. It's still filtered through the uniqueness of us here on earth as bodily men and women or non-binary people. Mm -hmm. I think that's the magic of us. We've got bodies. Um, and, uh, and so consequently, I, you know, I, I don't believe that we, um, are ever fully away from it. You know, let me see if I can find a couple of things here. I, I don't have the teaching aids, but the, in, um, in meditation, you know, depending upon the disciplines of meditation, the idea is is to get beyond duality into the ineffable, um, and um, and uh, where there is no duality, there is no shadow. It is only light. Um I understand that. I go to it every day. I spend a lot of time before I ever do my creative work there because I want to be in touch with something greater than myself, mm. greater than the world, bigger than the universe. Um mm. uh, and I know it. You know, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, <clears throat> Carl Jung says uh I don't believe in God. Uh, because I know God, yeah, and um, and so consequently, I think that always, and the gift I mean, somebody said this in an article and I just stole it, you know, completely, which is existential gratitude, mm. being always grateful for living. And that's a very, very, very interesting place to be. To never forget to be grateful for this experience, whatever this experience may be. And, you know, we all know that it's a little screwed up from time to time. Um, And um, that's the way I tried to lead my life. And and I think that there is a whole generation of people beyond the Indigo children. You know, I think there's a whole generation of people and in part formed and shaped by COVID, the quarantine of COVID, who have really left a lot of the systems Mm -hmm. that we've been held in a trance in a way. Oh, money and, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, 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 and uh, the status, uh, you know, they're all, you know, BS. And I think that we're coming into a very, very different mindset. Yeah. Um, you know, ego, ego isn't a bad thing. It's part of the foundation of who we are. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also part of what makes us human. Um. And, um, you know, and it also gives us our unique voice, but it's not the only part of us. And uh, I I, I think that art today and future art needs to look at a deeper sense of perspective.
2: Mm.
1: And I wrote the line, though it's kind of been used before, um uh, from merlin and he says uh, i uh, i have uh, three eyes and one of them is for seeing mm. and and i and i uh, and and i do believe that we are now beginning to see with our interior world in a much deeper way i think a lot of people are seeking it wanting it yeah needing it than ever before and i do believe i mean we're all frequency i do believe that um there's an elevation of frequency that's happening that if we allow ourselves to be touched by it and moved by it um and changed by it Hmm. which is a choice um then a lot of wonderful things are going to happen. Just a lot of wonderful things are going to happen. And and I don't know about you, Ricky, what's your experience? I'm seeing it more and more every day.
0: Well, you're nodding, but what does that mean? I, I, well, I think it means that or, I'm moved by what you're sharing and, and the beauty of it. And, you know, I... I I talk, I say, I use the word enchantment and that is almost like a container really for so many different things. And, and one of them is beauty and, and wonder and awe. And, and oh, there was so much in, in what you shared then. And, and um, even this morning when I was journaling, I've been so fortunate to go from you know, chronic depression to that having I uh, quite like a spiritual awakening. And really a big part of that is like opening my heart and i feeling that open-heartedness and I was smiling at one point because you talk about existential gratitude and I've I've been so fortunate to have moments of like what I just call lucid presence to the extent where the like how incredible and how amazing everything is just crystallizes in a way that moves me to tears and it's like I I believe deep down that when we move away from the mental activity and the fears and and like the the way that our thoughts can carry us away from the present that when we really arrive in that in the moment then we we do kind of um arrive at that heart opening sense of love and 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 complete rejoice really and, and then the thing that, that saddens me is like as I say this I still have a really it's the voice is a lot quieter than it used to be but there's a really like low hum that's like oh it sounds, that sounds a bit cheesy it sounds a bit far-fetched but it's it's been part of my experience and it sounds like what you're talking to as well is like if we can be moved into to a sense of humility before all of this for, not to necessarily forget ourselves but to, to in, integrate everything and connect to beauty to connect to the imagination without losing that um through the kind of rigid structure of seriousness then we're really tapping into like what makes life most meaningful um yeah so i i'm i'm moved by that that sharing and and this it's it's just it's just refreshing it's refreshing because i feel that so many narratives are hijacked by fear especially at the moment understandably there's there's fear to tap into in the collective, but to see the potential for transformation and the potential to, to go through like a collective dark night of the soul and to be reborn from that with a, a renewed appreciation of life's wonder.
1: You've got to carry your brothers and sisters with you. You see, this is, this is what I realize. I can't deal, I can't help the people at a base level, where they operate out of fear, hate, anger, revenge. You know, on the other side of that spectrum, way up here, is gratitude, love, harmony. My last years here on this earth are going to be spent elevating the group here, Because if I can help moving up that sense of elevation, there's going to be much more power in those high notes than there is in the droning survival crap that we Mm -hmm. see all over the news every day. And I'm not saying that, you have to be a high priestess or priest you know you can do this in everyday life at the grocery store and you know and you know at the you know taking a walk and how you greet people and 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 showing a connection in terms of um us being together in this place now if the person says f off you know then okay you made your point, it. so I'll, I'll move on. Yeah, I'll move on to somebody who would like to walk with my dog and their mm-hmm. dog together for a few moments and enjoy the day. Um, I and that's been a choice. I'm not going to, it's not my destiny to convert the jailhouse, mm. it's just not. Um, and uh, and uh, I am much better served for myself to concentrate on those that have to struggle every day with a diamond. Mm-hmm. And who are thought leaders mm-hmm. and who um, understand the gift of life and want to make it a better experience for those around them and those that will come after them. Yeah. And I'm certainly hardly perfect, but, uh, you know, I'm certain, I certainly reach for that. Can I just share with you one last thing before I hold on one
0: sec? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Sorry. You know, I
1: find this so interesting. Um, you know, I I grew up as an altar boy, and you know, I was going to go into the priesthood. I was grew up in the Catholic faith, and you know, I've studied Buddhism, and you know, I uh, uh, not so much Hinduism, um, but I really do believe that world religions all point to the same realm.
0: Yes, me too.
1: Uh, they just use different you know points of view. Mm. But I found this, and this is some, and and I've reduced it. But this is a prayer of Caritas. And it was, I think, some French mystic, but I really condensed it down. But this is what I really love because it doesn't, it's not about God. It's not about the divine necessarily, but this is what the worship is. Oh, truth. Oh, goodness. Oh, beauty. That's the three. Mm -hmm. We wish in some way to deserve your mercy so you're actually you're actually pointing towards value yeah um and an unseen value um but we all know truth and we all know beauty yeah we know what goodness is i don't you know i don't believe in the devil and evil or any of that stuff but i do believe that there's an absence you know to goodness that that can be driven by self-serving needs Mm. which is um putting everything you first over everything else and i think that is where darkness lies Mm. and 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 goodness lies with um let's all rise up together yeah Uh, but remember i'm also myself and you're yourself Uh, um but we can uh we can have joy in that experience, and we can be grateful. Mm. And I, 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 I don't think there are any good paradigms uh, r- r- fully for the future sense of spirituality. Yeah. And I think that that's something that really, uh, I'm not saying that, oh, we need a new leader, you know, here or there, and, you know, oh, we need another religious leader. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we have to, Cultivate something that has come from the world religions into something that yeah. um, that is uh, beautiful, truthful,
0: mm. and good. Yeah, there's a Cam um, Wilbur. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He he does a lot with like spiral. He calls them spiral dynamics. And mm. I watched a video of him talking about holarchies, which like hierarchies, but they incorporate previous levels. Kind mm-hmm. um, of use the metaphor of like a cell and how a cell then develops, and like we kind of incorporate each previously you know, an atom into um, into a particle and this kind of stuff. And when you say this about spirituality, that's what I think of is, is that we have to find a new paradigm that doesn't completely dismiss everything that's come before it, but it integrates it fully. And I feel that at the moment on on the world stage, we see like a polarity between outright dismissal of the mythical and a disconnect from the mythical and and the kind of archetypal on one side and then a, a disconnect from reason and science on the other. And if we can kind of bring all of these elements together as a spiritual practice, then maybe we can dream the impossible on lila on, on the the divine stage as well as in our stories as well as uh yeah in, in the way that we kind of dream yes
1: yes I, I think that's well said uh reason and science um along with spirituality together mm-hmm. I've always sensed that um science and spirituality uh should be brother and sister, not against yeah. one another in battle yeah and maybe that's part of the metaphor going back to all the early you know you know histories mm-hmm. of, of of world people
0: yeah um and is I, it
1: camp wilbur w-i-l-b-u-r camp
0: e-e-r okay. he's an incredible um synthesizer of information so he's got a mm-hmm. lot of models of consciousness um mm-hmm. i i'm i'm Respectful of your yeah. time, I know we're, we're coming towards the end. One thing, um, course, which is maybe my ego, FR. yeah, we're we're on the the mark, aren't we? Um, one thing I wanted to mention is that I really like what you touched upon with like the we we speak of polarity, but also your view of paradox and how we have polarity as a tension point, and I feel that for for so many of us, paradox also creates tension, creates. Um, it's, famous psychological theory of cognitive dissonance when we struggle to reconcile behavior with belief and this kind of stuff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the reason it has come to mind now is based on what you said around living a life and being able to almost let go of like elaborate ideas of, of how to change the world but to 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 do it at the supermarket to do it on that on the walk and i what i love about that you also mentioned humanness and divinity and I feel like there's this paradox between like our kind of divine spiritual power that we can access and our messy flawed imperfect humanness Um, and the the need to bring those together but also more importantly uh, on some level not that you could really kind of put in a hierarchy but this dance between significance and insignificance and I feel that for a lot of people, when they explore the existential, without the ground in, they can feel insignificant. But I feel that we're actually both insignificant in a universal scale, but so, so significant in our own sphere of influence in, in the way that we can affect. Um, and to, to segue that in, I, I've got one, one more question. Um, and the word kind of linked, linked me into it nicely you mentioned intuitive affection um, and that being a kind of a a way to, to move towards what you want in life. Could you maybe say a little about that in, in closing? Because I think it's such a beautiful um, process. Well,
1: uh, yes, uh, I think that um, – I, I mean, I, I think it's intuitive affection um, – is uh, why I made a little film for Walt Disney. Because I was, you know, I'm an insignificant little kid in Ohio, Uh, but I knew I could make him laugh. And um, I think when you lead with, and I don't mean to sound cheesy, as you pointed earlier, um, I I think if you lead with love, Um, everything in your life changes. And I think if you can keep that higher registry of tone Mm -hmm. alive in you, I mean, we see it all the time. Oh my God, those people are so happy. And look, that guy's always laughing. I want to be him. (laughs) (laughs) And, but we are him. We are him. If we have intuitive affection, it's just the love of, men and women and understanding that we're not perfect, but please let's get through it together in a way that is also thankful for this crazy thing called life. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is quite a, it is quite, it's a, it it requires a larger consciousness than any of us have to really fully understand it. And isn't that one, isn't that wonderful? Mm Um. So I, I think uh, I think intuitive affection is a state of mind and heart, and and I, I really like what you said, and I think that's the ultimate, which is to bring science and reason and and spirituality together, um, and see what that mix looks like.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, because I think the big, I, I think the big thin entering wedge uh you know the big you know antithesis to life is uh artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and uh i think uh we're we're being robbed of our vitality um every moment of the day
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh it uh we we just have to be a little more mindful of that so that um we as human beings can evolve into what we what we should be which is highly enlightened you know loving uh super smart people uh who can you know who can uh, conduct miracles
0: yeah so. what a beautiful way to end this discussion david thank you so much for your time and thank you thank you thank Ricky. You. it's been a pleasure absolute pleasure do
1: it again sometime
0: that would yeah that would be awesome thank you so much okay thank you for listening to this episode of the mind that ego podcast to stay up to date you can join the mind that ego mailing list if you head to mind slash mfm you also get a copy of my book mindsets for mindfulness when you join you can also follow mind that ego on facebook and youtube where the podcasts are also displayed in video format along with other inspired videos that i create or if instagram is more your social media of choice you can follow me at ricky underscore deriz that's d-e-r-i-s-z